right, we are just getting into the heart of our study of the canon. And um, we're coming to the end. We have this evening and then next week we're going to finish up. Um, I forgot that Aaron is starting his study the week after next. So next week we'll try to finish up with the canon and then maybe take like a half hour to talk about Bible translations, if that's okay. If that's okay with you guys. Um, it was just too much to do the long class tonight. I, I had to split this last one up. So um, I'm sorry. It's just the way it goes, man. But it's been, I think it's been helpful. I think it's been good. If you put all of our classes together, it's going to help you. I know even last night I was talking to Lainey. She's having a conversation with the person at work and kind of talking a little bit about how you get the Bible, how you can trust the Bible, so on and so forth. And Right? And some of the things click in from our class. And so that's kind of what part of this. It's, it's just kind of making you aware, giving you some handles, at least to get started with, on how we could trust the Bible, how we got the Bible, why the why these books are in the Bible, why we have these books. Because there's lots of questions coming out like that to challenge us in our faith. So I think it's important. So let me pray, and then we'll get in with our class. Father, never would you thank you and praise you so much. I thank you for everybody here just taking the time out, Lord God, to uh, come together. This is part of our fellowship, even as we're learning. I thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in our church, Lord, how you are giving, giving us numbers, a number of ways to to be with each other, to fellowship, Lord, whether it's a study of your word, whether it's being together in more informal settings, but just, Lord, having us, your people, together around our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So just pray that we continue to grow in you, to continue to learn, continue to uh, seek to understand, to be ready to have an answer for the hope that lies within us, to everyone who would ask. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so finally we get down to... What we hold to when it comes to how we know which books belong in the canon, which books belong in the Bible. And if you haven't been all the other classes, you could go back and check them out. You have your outlines, you can check those out. But in the end, bottom line, just like everything else, very consistent in Christianity, we get what we have from the Lord ultimately. And the same goes for the canon. That's how we understand um, that these books belong in the New Testament. Ultimately, they come from the Lord. It's technically called the self-authenticating model of canon. And there are certain elements involved in that. And it, it gives us, and I love it because it gives us enough to say, yes, that makes sense. I see some evidence there. But it doesn't give us enough that we can just... Trust that completely. We still have to trust in the Lord. We don't always have a full answer. So our faith has to come in. But it's not a faith, it's not a blind faith. It's not a faith without ample evidence. And that's what I love about Christianity. Because ultimately it does come to the conviction of the Holy Spirit and us trusting in Him. But it's not just, you know, completely on us. Oh yes, we have it down. We have every single answer to every, you know, doctrine and every idea. So this is how we know. And now I can finally believe because I'm satisfied with it. No, man, there's a lot of faith involved. Think about the Trinity. You know, we can explain the Trinity from Scripture. It's seen plainly in Scripture, but it's still a mystery. And so there's a lot of things like that. And it, 
even when it comes to canon, it's that as well. We're always relying on the Lord. So, uh, just the elements, that's what I want to talk about tonight, the components of the self-authenticating model. And it's important for you guys to have this, to know this for your general information. Again, for yourself, gives you more confidence in the Word, but also as you're uh, speaking and explaining to others about why we believe the Bible and these books are meant to be it. So, first thing that you need, really, and this all comes um, from Scripture and understanding what God does. First thing you need to have is what's called providential exposure. It's right there on your outline. In other words, the church can't authenticate books that it doesn't have. And that's, there's so much going on in the world of academia and theology, that area where they're, oh, what about this book? What about that book? We just found the Gospel of Thomas. We have this book. You know, all these different books. Why aren't they part of the canon? Why aren't they part of the Bible? Well, first of all, the church needs to be uh, collectively aware of the books that God wants us to possess. And that's really up to him. So providentially, he assures that they're not lost, they're not forgotten, they're brought there in a timely manner, they're the books that are before us. That's part of the faith that comes in. We believe in God's providence, right? God's works of providence is most holy, wise, powerful, preserving, governing of all his creatures and all their actions. He makes sure that we have the books that he wants us to have. That's, we look to him in that. So the implications of that are um, lost books are not relevant for this model. So people say, well, what about some of the other books? We know that the apostles wrote other letters. What about those? Well, they're not relevant. God gave us the one he wants. Because there's books like, you know, if you read uh, in Corinthians, Paul absolutely wrote another letter, at least one, maybe two letters, because he said that he's written another letter to them. So where's 3 Corinthians? We have First and Second Corinthians. What about that third letter? How come, you know, people, do you really have a whole canon because you don't have that letter? Um, there, there's indications that there might have been a second letter to the Philippians, or I think from Colossians that he wrote a letter to the Laodicean church. We don't have those. And so, you know, people say, well, there you go. You don't have a full canon. Listen, why not all the letters from the apostles? Because these are the ones that God intended us to have. Now, the other ones that were written, if they were written in the office of apostles, it would have apostolic authority, you know, would have that. But the answer to that would be that those other letters, since we don't have them, and this is what God has given to us, They did have a a temporary, limited function at that time, but God did not see fit to include them into the canon. Okay? And that does make sense. You know, if he wanted us to have them, we would have them. They were used at that time for a specific purpose, for a limited function, and that's how we would answer that. Um, What if we found a letter today? What if we found 3 Corinthians? Which... It's, I don't know. It's my plan. <laughs> <laughs> it's impossible. Yeah, I don't know. Would you? Should that be part of the canon? Because it was written by Paul. It was written to the church. With and there's lots of debates. And and like Michael Kruger, the guy I'm using for all this information, uh, who's a professor, said he has gone back and forth on that. You know, and really wrestled with it in his mind and written about it and so on and so forth. But Kruger says that most likely he would not add it to the canon. And the reason, again, is the canonical books, by definition, are foundational. We have the foundation. The church for 2,000 years have had, you know, nearly have had these books 
These are the ones that God has given to us. To add another one now, you know, how would that fit? What would that mean? Um, again, he would go back and say it's the temporary for that time uh, nature. But there's, they go back and forth, um, the scholars on this. Um, again, the chances would be slim or slim than slimmer than slim and slim at this point of finding something like that. But um, lost books don't mean that the canon's incomplete, and that's what I want you to understand, because people try to say that. Well, how do you know you have all the books? Because these are the books that God gave us. It doesn't mean that they're incomplete. These are the books God saw fit to preserve in the books that we do have. So we're working with what we have. Providential exposure. God made sure. God made sure that those letters were copied. They were written. They were distributed to the other churches. They were seen as authoritative from early on. We've talked about this in past classes. So on and so forth. So by in his way, not like magically or anything, but just you know, working through his people, working through his church. These are the books that we have and that he's given to us. So providential exposure, one element of the self-authenticating model. And again, there's a lot more that could be said on this. There's an entire class on what I just spoke to. So you have like a little synopsis. But what I'm trying to do in this class is give you a handle. And then you can go as deep as you want. There's a lot of information on all of these components that we're talking about. Uh, the second one, and this is the big one, and this is the one we're going to look at next week. Components of the self-authenticating model. How could we tell that these books are from the Lord? This is huge, and it's the attributes of canonicity. That is so, so important. That's so big that we're going to take the whole class next time to talk about that because that is just the major. It's the way God revealed his word to be his word that he's given to the church. But Westminster Confession of Faith, I do want to read from that, chapter 1 and section 5, when it talks about, talking about the scriptures. Again, it's, it's uh, like the larger catechism, question number 4, but um, I, do, I do want you to hear this in terms of the word of, of the New Testament, or of scripture. He says... We may view, I'm sorry, we may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church, so there's a place for the church, to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scripture. And the heavenliness of the matter, this is the attributes, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation the many other incomparable excellencies in the entire perfection thereof are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. So there's lots of attributes, lots of things to say this is the word of God. Divine attributes in that way or qualities. But then listen to what it says here at the end. Um, yet notwithstanding our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word into our hearts. Amen? Amen. Praise God. That's it. And that's, it just explains it. And we experience that very thing in life. So when we talk about the, the, the qualities of God, God's marks, God's fingerprints, you know, 
kind of almost you can see God's attributes within these kind of qualities. So, for instance, we see it in other places too. We know there's God in our heart of hearts, even without scripture. So what's that called when we look out to the world that's created? What kind of revelation is that that God gives us? General revelation, natural revelation. The the heavens declare his glory. Romans one. We are we'll read from those passages. But in that way, so if you're if you, you go out as a Christian and you sit out wherever you go on a beautiful morning, what do you do when you look out? Even here in Pennsylvania, let alone in really beautiful places, when you see that sun coming up or you see the leaves, what do you do as a Christian? Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Praise God. Lord, it speaks to you. Look at that sun that you created this. That's what we see because we have eyes to see that. Unbelievers see it. They suppress the truth. What does your unbelieving friend say? Who do they give thanks to? They give thanks. They give thanks to the universe. Mother Nature. You know, Father Time, whatever. You know, this is not Father Time, Mother Nature. But that's that's what they're going to say. Wow, isn't nature beautiful? Isn't nature wonderful? Look at this. You know, they they can't deny the beauty. They just deny the, the creator who made it. But the unbeliever will say to the unbeliever, no, this is God. It shows God. You can, you can talk about the intricacy, the beauty, the majesty, all those kinds of things. But when we go to explain to our unbelieving friends, what do we tell them? We point to the attributes of God, just in, in the knowledge of God, like in Psalm 19. Um, we can go to Job, anywhere, just throughout Scripture. But even in Psalm 19, uh, verses 1 through 6, we read this. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals its knowledge. What's it saying? There's a God. This is God who made it. it every day. It's a constant witness for God. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there's nothing hidden from its heat. So, again, the speaking of God's majesty, his glory, uh, Romans 1, of course, uh, people know God in part because of his creation. So, beginning 118, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Well, how is it plain to them? Um, for sin is plain to them, for God has shown it to them. For since for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. Although they knew God, they didn't honor God or give thanks to him, became futile in their thinking, foolish in their heart, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So all of that. But he speaks to this is this is creation. So when we when we talk about creation, we talk about the beauty, the majesty, the power, right? All these things of God. Who could create this? 
Genesis 1 and 2, how he created these things. That's where we are going to go. Creation itself bears the marks of God. It shows that he created it, the power, the knowledge, all the interest. In, thank you. <laughs> all of, everything is there. So that's how we're going to explain it. So we're doing It's the same thing when it comes to how we can know this is the word of God and it belongs in the canon. So, um, so even when it comes to abstract things, God is still revealed. The character of God, the nature of God is still revealed in the sciences or, or even like in the laws of logic, right? The laws of logic, we, we, it makes coherent thinking possible. You can't think coherently without laws of logic. You can't have a contradiction. You can't say, my car's in the parking lot, my car's not in the parking lot at the same time, in the same place. That's, although people are messing with it because they're messing with God. You know, the, the identity. A cat is a cat. A cat is a cat. Well, that would be different. We're talking about a car in the parking lot. You know, the car that you drove in here with, it's there and it's not there. It can't be. That's a law of contradiction. Although people, again, are trying to get around with these law of identity. A thing is what it is. A cat's a cat. Characters are a cat. Not anymore, right? Because they're rebelling against God. Excluded middle. Something's either true or it's false. People are denying reality all around us. Two plus two doesn't mean five. It can be five now, right? So this is one way people are, are arguing against God. But if you think about the laws of logic, you really can't have a coherent system of thought apart from them or if you try to um, break them right but how do they represent God this is really cool it's not obviously I got this from Greg Bonson but um, can you see a law of logic they're abstract right God is spirit too where are the laws of logic where do they operate are they everywhere (laughs) I mean, is our law of logic like, can we have a law of logic here, but not in China? Are they different there? When you go to China, are the laws of logic different there? Do you have contradictions? Here you can't have contradictions, but there you can. No, they're universal. They're omnipresent. So you see the character of God? You can't see them. They're abstract. They're God of spirit. They're everywhere. It reflects the nature of God's character. And they're unchanging. You can't change the law of law. It is what it is. It's fixed. And God is unchanging in nature. It makes things coherent. God is coherent God. So even the abstract qualities reflect God. Scripture then bears the marks of God's qualities. They're there. It's true. And then this is what we're going to do next week. We're really going to look at these um, and see how these are the determining a determining factor, a huge, big determining factor as to what Scripture is. Because there's a lot of competitors with, with Scripture. Um, they are there. It's true. They need, they're, they're set before us. But in the end, just like with creation, just like with these laws, they need to be revealed to us by the Holy Spirit, right? So before you were a Christian, you kind of knew God in your heart of hearts. But you didn't worship God as creator for this beautiful. You know, you might worship a God or you know the maker of all this, whatever. But you didn't worship your God. Now as a Christian with your eyes open, you know who created, right? You know the laws of logic are universal. 
They are abstract. They're unchanging because our God is that. Here it is. The Holy Spirit reveals these things. Now, when you're talking to your friends and something, they say, well, how do you know these are the word of God? Well, because, you know, these characteristics, these are here because the Holy Spirit brings convictions. What's your unbelieving friend going to say at that point? Ah, oh, there you go. There you go, Christian. Now you have to say, oh, the Holy Spirit. That's your trump card all the time. It's, you know, something he does inside of you. You know, you, you can't, it's, you know, and they kind of see that as subjective or it can't be proven, disproven or anything like that. You know, just that's, you. so you guys go right to your Holy Spirit thing and that's something he has to do. But that's the testimony of Scripture, right? In 1 Corinthians, the, the, it's foolishness to man. These things are foolishness to man. Until the Lord changes your heart. So when people say something like, you know, there you go again. Right? Go to your Holy Spirit thing. Yeah, yeah, some evidence. But you really need the Holy Spirit. But that's true. And that's the evidence. And what I would say to people like that is one retort, I guess, to that is is look. There have been thousands of people over the years who are just like you, who are scientific, who were atheistic, who didn't believe, who tried to prove it wrong. Thousands and thousands over the year. We could give we can give you a number of these people. We could say Josh McDowell, Lee Strobel, there are many others, many other atheists <coughs> over the years who have been converted. So they were right where you were, exactly where you were. With your mind, with your science, with your, you know, that kind of thinking. When they are converted, they see. And what do you do to those people? All of a sudden you call them, oh, you're just now, you're, you know, you're foolish. It's just like, you know, if people are converted out of LGBTQ or the whole gay scene, what does the, what does the rest of that group do? Instead of listening to them and saying, here's my testimony, what does that group do? Oh, get out of here! You know, you you don't you're not really one of us. That's the same thing here, okay? But this is I want you to have confidence in that because people will push back in that way. And once you say, ultimately, you need the Holy Spirit's enlightenment or understanding from Him, they're going to push back hard. But we'll talk all about that next week. That was just a, a little tiny introduction to that. The third component, and just as we've been talking about, is the role of the Holy Spirit. Um, the testimony of the Holy Spirit is needed to reveal the divine qualities of the books of Scripture. Now listen, it's not, and this is really important, it's not that the Holy Spirit comes and whispers and says, okay, that's 1 Corinthians, that's, that's for the Lord. That's why. No, he doesn't do that. What he does is he enables us to see what is already there. That's really important to get. He enables us to see What's already there? It is God's word. He just lifts the blinders and we see those qualities. We see that they belong. There's, it's coherent. It makes sense. Again, as we talk about the qualities next week, this will make even more sense to you. But it's not that he comes down like with the Joseph Smith or somebody and whispers and says, here's what this book is. No, he just he, he enables us to see what's already there. In other words, the Holy Spirit overcomes the effects of sin uh, it cures the spiritual blindness, so we're able to see the attributes, the objective attributes of God that make it the Word of God. So it's like it's like if you're driving on a foggy morning down the highway. Um, 
you can't see the signs, you know, the speed limits or the signs for your exits. And I know, don't, and you can have your GPS, but the signs that are outside because they're covered by the fog. But it doesn't mean that they're not there. They're there, objectively, they're there. When the fog lifts, you're able to see the Holy Spirit lifts the fog. I was at the eye doctor, you know, when you get your eye test and everything's all foggy. Can you see this? Oh, can you see this? Now what's, how about now? How about now? Clear? Two? Three, right? It goes back and forth. Five? Six? Whatever, whatever they say. <laughs> clear. You know what I mean? They drive you crazy. But it's real blurry until they get the right lens. And then it's very clear. That's what the work, it's more than that. But, you know, that's the idea behind the Holy Spirit. We actually see what's already there. So, We're not saying that a book is canonical because we have an experience of the Holy Spirit. And some people say, I had a burning in my bosom. Oh, I just know. I know because I know. You know, no. We say it's canonical because of the objective marks of the book, which the the Spirit gives us the wisdom in the eyes to see them and to receive them. That's a real big deal, the self-authenticating model. That goes with God's providence. It goes to the work and the rule of the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? Okay. And he does that. And so this is how we, I know, and identify scripture. Another component um, important is the corporate reception. This is where the church comes in. You know, the church doesn't make up the canon. The church does receive the books. It's the body of Christ. Again, it's not one person. If you have one person saying, this is, you know, this is my book, and... Again, the perfect example is Joe Smith, you know, when he comes with the Book of Mormon. This is the given to me by the angel and so on and so forth. That's no. He had corporate reception. The divine qualities, in other words, are seen or apprehended by the community of believers. Not just one person, not a pope, not just a, but the, the community itself. Um, that's... Coming from the Lord. These have the marks of uh, the qualities of um, divinity. So the covenant community collectively receive the books. Remember the testimony of the Holy Spirit in conjunction with the divine qualities. So these are the books that the early church used, the early church copied, the early church distributed, the early church saw as divine. We've talked about that, how Peter said that Paul's book is scripture. In other places, we've seen how they knew that this was scripture. So there's that court, but the, but the church does receive them and has them. Uh, the proper rule of the church then, when church doesn't create the canon, it doesn't invent the canon, we are the reactors to what is already true of the books. We, the church doesn't make them holy. They don't become holy. They are God's holy word. We receive them. We recognize them. God providentially brings that forth to us. The divine quality, the guidance of the Holy Spirit. We receive the books um, along with the divine qualities through the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Right? So we, we have that before us. So that's another mark. Another component. So this is a grid. This is a filter. And everything I'm mentioning here tonight, we're just zipping through. We're zipping through this. But every item here that I'm speaking to, we could do probably a four to six week course on. And if you're at seminary or beyond that, these things have a lot of implications. Because there's a lot of back and forth, but there's so much more detailed information. 
I'm just giving you the handles. I'm just giving you the framework, the basics. That's all my intention is. But I do want you to see this because it's not willy-nilly. Oh, we just have the books because we decided these would be good books. No, 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 no. It says God working through his people to give the books that he wants us to have. Uh, so another quality is apostolic origin. That's why you can't just write a book today unless you're an apostle. How many apostles do we have today? I saw one the other night on TV. <laughs> apostle John G. What was his name, Lenny? <laughs> He's calling himself the apostle. How many two apostles are there today? These are the apostles. And I know we talked earlier about the nature of the apostolic office. God delivered his message in a distinct block of time. And that's really important. So the New Testament books... I don't know. There's the, the dates vary um, anywhere from mid-30s at the earliest, or I'm sorry, 40s at the earliest to 90s at the latest for all the books in the New Testament. But that's a block of time that we have the New Testament books. And we talked about this earlier when we talked about um, biblical criticism. Getting back to the originals. So it was a distinct block of time through a distinct office, the apostolic office that carried the authority of Jesus Christ with them. So it's not random. It's not arbitrary. It's not just anybody. You can't just sit down and write your own gospel now and think you're going to get it accepted. Although people do try. Uh, so, but, but see, that, that's a, these are all guardrails. These are all, these are all good evidence that show us we still need faith. Because even everything I'm telling you tonight, you might have questions, you might think, oh, that's there's something, you know, there's a, I'm not, there's a gap here. But that's where our faith comes in. This is really strong evidence for that faith that we have. Um, so Ephesians 2.20, we're built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. Prophets represent the Old Testament. Apostles represent the New Testament. The apostles were chosen by Christ. Um, and there were qualifications for the apostles, even when they chose Matthias. And they went back and they quoted from the Psalms to be able to do that. They had to be what? Part, do you guys remember a couple of the uh, qualifications to be an apostle? To be counted as an apostle? What was it? They had to be with them from the beginning. We get this from Acts 2, from the beginning. Acts 1. Is it 1 or 2? Um, so they had to be part of Jesus' ministry. They had to have seen the risen Christ. And so they were uh, put put into that office. So, in other words, the apostles carried that divine authority from God, led by the Spirit, speak with the, with the Spirit, would give to them, carry Jesus' authority with them. Their writings, therefore, were authoritative, they were written directly by the apostles or by close associates or you know, people who would write what they said to them. So you have um, Mark. Who was Mark close to, an associate to? Do you remember which apostle? It's Peter. And Dr. Luke was close to Paul. You know, so, so they had these uh, associations in that way. So... The collection of writings that are apostolic in nature are authoritative in content. 
they derive from the era of the apostles themselves. So there's that block of time and those people that were there. Again, in Second Peter, um, I do want to read that to you. Peter says this, beginning in verse 16. But we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. When we received honor, when he received honor and glory from the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And here it is, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but by men spoke but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So that's a really strong passage. And we've talked about this in the past as well. That they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What they were writing was authoritative. These were God's word used by him. Of course, Second Timothy um, 3, 3.15 and 16. All scriptures God breathed, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. So these are the writings that are apostolic in nature, authoritative in content, derived from the era of the apostles themselves. Um, these weren't casual letters. It's just like, oh, he just wrote this letter. We just found this letter. He's right. No, it was it, it was more, much more than that. Authoritative letters. Even at that time, they didn't become scripture. Like Roman didn't become scripture. It was scripture as Paul was writing it. He was being carried along by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is God-breathed inspiration. That's why. And we're going to see those marks next week. This is all part of it, how we get the the canon itself. Um, The early church collected the writings and they used them. They them, thought of them as authoritative and used them in that way. And none of this is important too. None of the early church fathers in the earliest centuries, not apostles, they never tried to do what the apostles did. Now, there were a lot of other books that claimed to be God, but the true fathers of the church, Polycarp and going on to Origen and others, they never tried to claim what they wrote was authoritative on the level of Scripture. They would write commentaries about Scripture. They were discerning what Scripture was, but they received Scriptures themselves. They never tried to say, okay, you have this Romans from Paul, but here's what I'm writing too. It could fit right in with what Paul was writing. No, it has the same authority. They never tried to do that. That's very important, that witness of the early church. They were receiving the word of God and obeying it. They weren't trying to you know, add on to it. Now, they would have commentaries regarding it and so forth on it, all of that for sure. But they weren't saying, okay, this is on par with scripture. Okay, That's really important to, to understand. Because many books were written in the 2nd and 3rd century, um, they would have been rejected by because they don't have apostolic authority. So, for instance, the Shepherd of Hermes, really, really good, really informative. Has anybody ever read the Shepherd of Hermes? It's good. There's a lot of qualities. Um, and there's his letter to the Corinthians. He was an apostle, but was it Polycarp? I forget who it was. Anyway, there's so many, like very, very biblical in so many ways, but not scripture itself. 
because it doesn't meet this criteria. It doesn't go through this grid. So that's it. That's what I have um, for tonight. Just real quick as we finish up, just a summary of the self-authenticating model. Again, we could use it as a grid as the Lord has given it to us to say, okay, these books bear the marks of apostolic or holy books of the books that God wants us to have. So providential exposure, we have the book. Do we have the book? Attributes of canonicity, that's the big one we're going to look at next week. The rule of the Holy Spirit, the apostolic origin, that kind of keeps it in that time frame and date and so forth and by those who, who wrote it, and then the corporate reception. So do you see the kind of the grid that it goes through? This is part of the way that from our perspective, we kind of safeguard. Now, again, God is providentially working and preserving his books. But as we act, we look at these kinds of things because it, it weeds out a lot of the books, a lot of the pretenders that would come along. And there were so many pretenders. So, for instance, um, there was a book found called The Gospel of Peter. And it was found pretty early on. I forget exactly when. Somewhere in the 100s. And they wanted to say, you know, is this scripture? You know, it's, could this be scripture? It says the gospel of Peter on it. So you kind of go through the grid. Um, providential exposure? Well, yeah, they have a book. So they have a book there. But as they look at it, the attributes of canonicity? Uh, no, 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 no. There are serious doctrinal issues with it. Just like the Gospel of Thomas. I wanted to actually go through the Gospel of Thomas with you because that's been really popular a few years ago. Why don't you have the Gospel of Thomas in there? And then you would see why. You know, like Jesus killed a little kid because he did, did not, but then he rose him and said the, the cross came out of it. In other words, when they put it through this grid, you could see that it's not, it doesn't have the qualities that scripture has. And we'll talk about that. So, Gospel of Peter, no, there's serious doctrinal issues with Peter. It doesn't comport. When you look at these books, all the doctrine lines up. Now, we'll, we'll see a couple of people say, oh, there's contradictions. What about Paul and James? We talk about justification by works. We'll look at that next week as an example. They'll say that's a contradiction. It's not. Um, it wasn't written by Peter. So you don't have that apostolic origin because... It's dated like mid-second century. Peter was long dead before it was even written. So, you know, these kinds of things, they could be eliminated. But then there's skeptics say, oh, you know, what about these books? What about, you could tell them these things. You know, well, you know, that book there, that's, you know, it doesn't, it, um, <clears throat> it wasn't written by the apostle. So it doesn't, it wouldn't fit in that way. Or it doesn't have the same teachings that the, the rest of the Bible actually has. Whatever, all those kinds of things. So, that is the grid. So if you take one of the one of the first Peter, you can take first Peter. Does it have these qualities? Absolutely. Absolutely. It has these qualities. It, it's providential exposure. We have a book. Attributes of canonicity. Yeah. When you look at Peter and the rest of Scripture, it all lines up. The same teachings, the same doctrine. Different emphasis for sure. What he's teaching on, what he's showing. But it doesn't conflict with any other part of Scripture. Um that shows the role of the Holy Spirit in that, preserving that. Apostolic origin, Peter wrote the book, early date. Corporate reception, the church used it. It was one of the earliest books there. So very early on, uh, the, the church recognized many, many books as scripture. So 
this is a, a basic framework, a filter. And it's important for you to have this in mind as you're talking to people and even for yourself. Does this have a chance of being a true part of the canon? We have a basis, a mechanism for knowing, a process of recognition and collection. Again, always the Holy Spirit. But even the early church fathers, uh, Clement of Rome, early on, there were at least, in like AD 95, there were already like eight or ten books that were recognized to be scripture, from the New Testament, recognized to be scripture in that way. By Polycarp, there were 15 books. By the, And then by the mid-300s, that's when you had the full canon put together. But long before that, all the books, there was hardly any controversy. There's some controversy about a few of the books, about receiving them into canon. They put them through this grid, and there were some going back and forth, and we'll talk about that next week. But most of the 27 books, like 26 or 24, 25 uh, <clears throat> out of the 27, were readily received relatively early on by the church. They were just codified at, um, at the council. See ya, where they where they codified the, the, the canon and said, okay, the scripture. The scripture wasn't invented then. They had it long before then. They recognized long before then. It was just codified at that time. So that's what I wanted to do for tonight. Um, I guess we could have done. No, we would have been here like at least another forty minutes or so. But um, I want I wanted to put this out here and have you understand that. We have really good, strong evidence for what we believe. But there's still a measure of faith in trusting the Holy Spirit. But hopefully when we go with the divine qualities, that will really help fill in the gaps. Because when you see the majesty, the beauty, the consent of all the parts, how it flows, how it works together, what it teaches, what it does, how lives are transformed that will really, really help, help you fill in more of the gaps if you have any. So um, are there any questions or comments about this? Does this make sense to you guys? Is it helpful? <laughs> Everybody's just sitting there. Because <laughs> yeah. this is, this is a, a specialty, a special area of theology, and we're delving into it. This is where you know guys make their living doing this. This is what they do. Uh, this is what they teach. This is what they go. Um, it's a, kind of a specific area or science of theology that people spend a lot of time in. So I just want you to be familiar with it. And then there's so much more you can get beyond this. So um, just remember this, this idea. I want you to see it's not just willy-nilly. It just didn't fall out of the sky. It's just not some guy saying, I think this is it or I have this. There's real strong criteria for it with good evidence behind that as well. So anything at all? We good? All right. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you so much, Lord. And we have good reason to believe. We're on solid ground, Lord, as we... Think about the components of the self-authenticating model, how you brought your word to us, that you preserve that word, that you bring it to us, that it, it bears the marks of divinity very clearly, Lord God. We know that your Holy Spirit is superintending over all of this, Lord, that he does enable us to see 
what is already there, overcoming the effects of sin, Lord God. Um, we thank you for your church and how we are able to apprehend or see the the divine qualities of Scripture, how the your covenant community received those books, how they used those books, how they studied those books, how they um, distributed those books, Lord God, copied those books, lived by those, even down to this very day, Lord God. So we thank you. We thank you that um, those who wrote the scripture were chosen by you, Lord God, and there was a time frame and there was um, those with apostolic authority who were filled with your spirit, who were led and guided by your spirit. That's why all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for us, Lord God. So we see that they carried your authority, and they do to this very day. And we see them, um, again, as we'll speak to next week, how lives are changed, how when we do violate your word or your commandments, Lord God, that we see the consequences of that. There's so many others, Lord. Um, that they were written by your apostles, that the early church collected and used them, Lord God. So we do thank you and praise you so much for uh, this precious word, trustworthy, true, venerable, Lord God, through all the centuries where so many tried to rid the world of your word. They could not do it. They cannot do it. They will not do it. For it's your transcendent, everlasting, and almighty word. So I thank you for this night. I hope... that you help us to learn, grow, and continue to gain confidence in you. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.